Hello and welcome to Herpetological Highlights, The Interviews, Episode 2. Uh, today I'm joined by Steve Alain. Hello everybody. Uh, hi Steve. And we've been at Venom Day 2017 at Bangor University. Whoop whoop. Yep. And uh, we've taken a short break from talks to come and sit in the pub, <laughs> have a cider and talk about frogs. What great scientist doesn't enjoy the pub? That's exactly it. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. And um, yeah, for those that don't know, Steve is a master's student at Imperial College London. And he is really, really interested in amphibians and heterodiomycosis and various other aspects of their biology. And so what a fantastic person to have on the show. So thank you very much. Why don't you give people kind of a introduction? How did you get into amphibians? Why, why is it amphibians for you? Why are you doing research on them? Okay, so I, I often get asked this question and there's no simple answer other than uh, wildlife has always been close to my heart. Uh, I, I grew up in uh, I, I grew up on, on the South Essex coast, and the beach was always like ten minutes away from my house. There was vast areas of woodlands and grassland, and you know, all these habitats around for me to explore as a child. Uh, and uh, I never really grew up, so you know, I was chasing frogs when I was four, and twenty years later, I'm still doing it. And if if Things go to plan. I'll still be doing it far, far into the future. <laughs> uh, nothing's going to stop me. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, uh, as you said, I'm a master's student at Imperial. Uh, before that, I did my undergrad at Anglia Ruskin in Cambridge, where I was involved in a number of projects, uh, looking for amphibians, monitoring them, as well as reptiles as well. Uh, although I, I do cover most aspects of native herpetofauna, biology, and surveying, etc., there's a, a focus for amphibians for two reasons one you survey for amphibians at night and i'm a night owl so it works really well and two when it comes to reptile surveys you have to lay felts out and tins or whatever before you can go on a survey and in public areas and in private areas as well these are often tempered with by people so your survey can quickly become pointless if your artificial refuge have been removed or destroyed from an area which we have had happen a couple of times which is a shame but it is part of part of I think there's a special place reserved in hell for refugee vandals. it's not even a fun thing to smash it it's just under me roofing that makes no sense oh man well yeah yeah keep fighting a good fight though so um yeah so you're doing a project on midwife toads what's that all about i was yes so when I first moved to Cambridge in 2012, I was told about a population of midwife toads in the area and spent years trying to hunt them down. We had a few theories as well they could be. We would try an old, uh, an old midwife hospital, thinking they could be African clawed frogs, which were used up until recently as a pregnancy test. This didn't turn out to be the case. And then in 2015, we struck gold, and uh, one of the local residents who have, has these toads in their garden. Uh, allowed us to, to come over and hear the toad and, and see them for the first time. So we, we confirmed their presence, we networked with the local area, a, a lot of the, the local residents, they all know each other, uh, they, they know us very intimately now as well, and they make excellent cups of tea. We, we, we often get to, like uh, tea, cake and biscuits when we go to our service. I was going to say, how are the biscuits? Uh, it's interesting to think that these people have, have let these strangers into their house, uh, to have access to the garden, and when we're there, you know, me and my colleagues are rummaging around in the undergrowth, lifting up bricks, <laughs> uh, you know, under paving slabs, uh, yeah. you know, dipping nets in the ponds and stuff, <laughs> and full at it, and we get fed copious amounts of tea and biscuits, which I think is brilliant and how it should always be. 
this is very reminiscent of what you said just a minute ago about how you've been doing it since you were four and now you're 24. I vividly remember like climbing under the fence into my friend's neighbor's garden and looking for frogs. That's essentially what you're doing now under the, under the, under the guise of science. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's all the guys, guys. You know, I'm, I'm not a serious guy whatsoever. Yeah. But no, the, the residents are lovely people. Uh, but they also keep in contact via text or email so when they hear toad for the first time in the spring or when there's an area of heavy activity usually uh, about the time of the full moon when there's lots of rain uh, and it's quite warm then, then the toads go crazy and the residents let us know by, by contacting me or one of my colleagues and then we, we prepare to go out to site uh, so yeah no we, we've been working there for a number of years now uh, and it started as a population study at first so we're trying to figure out how how far the toads are distributed uh, how many there were what the age classes were you know so for two years up until this spring we hadn't found a breeding pond and then in the space of two weeks we found four or five uh, just because as more and more of the local residents get on board with the project we get fed more tea but we also get to explore more gardens and, and find these new sites right and uh, so there are there are about 40 gardens that toads live in. We've, we've had a rough search for them in 15, and half of those are suitable for, for surveys. So some of them are quite sterile, they're quite manicured, they're concrete there, or they're, you know, the grass is mown very, very short, there's no verge or anything for people to be hiding in. Can they survive in ponds where there are fish? They, they can survive in ponds where there are fish, because like most toads, they're, they're toxic. So uh, they can, but... Fortunately, the, the, the ponds that they do exist in, we have other amphibian species, so common frogs, common toads, and smooth newts, and weirdly for Cambridgeshire as well, palmet newts. So this year was the first time that we found palmet newts in Cambridge, and we're not sure how they got there. The day again may be an introduced species like these midwife toads, but we need to do some further analysis and that to try and find out. But uh, so yeah, the, the the ponds themselves that these toads breeding are tiny. You know, they are literally buckets sunken into the ground. Really? Or, or, or slightly larger in, in a couple of other cases, but yeah, they're just like washing up bowls or old sinks and buckets in the ground that the, the, the residents have put in for their children to be able to you know, observe pond life. And we have frogs and toads and newts breeding in these. And the gardens are, are rich with wildlife because a lot of the, the residents do where we survey for all the toads, grow all their own food and veg. Uh, you know, and they have lots of flowers. You know, there's lots of uh, lots of wildlife in the area, and it's no surprise that the midwife toads are flourishing there. Uh, and so, last year we started to swab them for the chytrid fungus. Uh, although we have had one sample analysed for the rhinovirus, so this year we found a dead juvenile on the survey, sent him off to his editor to be analysed. He was clear for chytrid, clear for rhinovirus, but we. We're pretty sure that the whole population is probably clear from Kittred now, although we're going to carry on with monitoring to make sure that it's different effect. Uh, in terms of coronavirus, we've only got one sample, so we can't see whether or not that is true or not. So, we're not entirely sure, but uh, we recently completed a successful crowdfunding campaign where we raised just over $1,700 to uh, fund our, our research. and. Uh, yes, we've had 39 swabs from adults and, and five from tadpoles over the past two years analysed and all of them come back negative. So I'm, happy, I'm happy to say that, that so far we haven't seen any chytrid 
in the midwife tales. Um, me and my colleagues are working on some papers at the moment that will be out shortly uh, regarding our results. Uh, so keep an eye out for those folks. And also we've done some genetic analysis to find out where the toads came from. And we've been able to find out with a 99% match that the toads came from an area of northern France. Fuck down. We've been able to determine that the toads came from an area of northern Spain. And it's interesting because all of the other UK populations, as far as we know, were founded from a single French population, which in turn founded a population in Bedford in the early 1900s. Uh, from there, people thought they were quite unique and quite, quite cool to so spread them further out. Uh, but because these were such a popular pet, there may be other populations hidden where we're unaware of them. So the population we're studying was first recorded in 2007, and it's likely the toads were introduced about that time. Speaking to the residents that have lived there you know, all their lives or for long periods of time, they definitely didn't hear the toads before that time, and they're, they're, they're quite uh, conspicuous. So they make a very loud bleeping sound, and most of the residents, before we came along to offer an explanation, thought it was someone's fire alarm or a car alarm or something. Because, really? Because it sounds like an, it doesn't sound like it's biological. It's a very electronic sounding sounding noise. Really? Uh, so yeah, uh, the guy that discovered him in 2007 uh, is John Baker, who d does not work with uh, with RUK, uh, the Amphibian Reptile Groups UK, and also the Ark Trust, which does conservation stuff here in the UK for uh, reptiles and amphibians. Uh, he he went out there because someone uh, had reported uh, Japanese frogs, in that they thought that these these frogs were Japanese because they, they made it sound like an Atari system. Yeah, uh, really. Uh, and then he later confirmed they were midwife toads. Unfortunately, he didn't see any in 2007. He just heard them, and because their call is quite distinctive and because they're quite conspicuous, you can you can tell whether they're there or not just by you know hearing for them. And then it wasn't until 2015 when we we had our first successful survey that we we found uh, a few individuals hiding in some paving slabs. And then from that point onwards, we we applied for the, the relevant. Uh, licenses from Natural England uh, to be able to handle the toads and swab them and, and you know do everything that the projects have helped into. So we were grateful for Natural England's uh, cooperation with the project because you know without them there would be no project because we'd be breaking the law by, by carrying out the research but also the residents as well. Not only do they make brilliant tea or for my colleagues coffee uh, <laughs> but you know they, they, they give up their time so we can come around their house and you know rummage around in, in their in their in the gardens in the undergrowth uh, and so sometimes I do wonder what they think of us when all they can see is our bums sticking out some bushes or you know, just, just our heads and arms uh, rummaging around uh, but uh, everyone seems to love it and a lot of them have, have young children and the children seem to be really interesting as well and, and some of the ponds are really small right? Yes, this is, the ponds are sort of quite small, but they, they contain whole ecosystems despite the fact that they are literally nothing. Yeah. So, listeners, if you're thinking of starting a wildlife garden ponds, it doesn't have to be 17 acres large to be attractive to wildlife. Just a small amount of water, as I said, a washing up bowl or a sink in the ground is enough to attract insects and therefore amphibians. And it's, it's amazing that how, how little water there is in the area for, for them to survive on in terms of uh, 
apology-wise for, for all the amphibians in the area, the toads and the frogs and the newts, because the midwife toads breed on land. They live their whole life on land, apart from when they're a tadpole. And then from that point in time, the females will never return to the water, and males will only return to, to the water when he deposits eggs, if he's successful in attracting a mate and, and fertilising And eggs. that's why they call the midwife toad. That's why they call the midwife toad. It should be the mid-husband toad, because it's the male that carries the eggs. It's all like seahorses, the roles have been reversed. Right. So, the, 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 there's uh, an elaborate sort of like dance, I suppose you could call it, where the female transfers the eggs to the male and he wraps around his legs and in the process he fertilises them. Uh, and brilliantly, Sir David Attenborough has described the process as trying to put your trousers on without using your hands. <laughs> so you can imagine what it's like. And, uh, you know, the, the, the toads themselves are quite small. Uh, if you're wondering how big these toads are, uh, they grow up to 50 millimetres in, in, in length from the, the, from the tip of their nose to the, the back of their, 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 their back. So they're about the size of a 50 pence piece. They're tiny. They are tiny. I had no idea they were that small. Oh, no, they're, they're, I'm staggered by this. Yeah, they're, they're, no wonder they breathe in the washing up bowl. <laughs> exactly. This is the thing is that, is that they can exactly do that. And uh, when we, I remember the first night that we, we found the midwife toad. And my, my colleague Mark, uh, who, who I've been doing this stuff with in Cambridge for the past five years, the look on his face, I, I don't think he slept that night after we found his toes and then you know we immediately went off to uh, Neckland and to various other places to apply for funding to apply for money for pay for we need to ensure that we could do a study that we wanted to do uh, and yeah so in the first year of the project I think we found eight toes. Last year we found and swabs seven toes. This year, because of the massive community involvement, we found uh, 34. That's fantastic, yeah. So, we've also been taking photographs of all of the individuals. I'm yet to do some, uh, some in-depth analysis, uh, but it will allow us to track individuals through time and space. So, I do know, because the population is quite small, of course you can notice individuals, because they all have unique markers, which is why we're taking the pictures to use software to uh, to tell us whether or not Tode has been seen yeah. further apart. But when you're up and intimate with this population, you do recognise individuals that they're quite distinctive. Yeah. Especially the males when, when we uh, uh, you know, to take a closer look at the eggs to try and figure out how far along they are to try and catch them in the act of deposit them in, in the nearest pond. Unfortunately, that, that's failed so far. We haven't seen it, but it's obviously taken place. It must be, yeah. We've also uh, found some huge overwintered tadpoles. So, uh, some of these were as, as large as my index finger, uh, and so the toads will breed two or three times a year depending on the weather and other environmental factors. Because of that, not all of the tadpoles metamorphose in that same season, so the tadpoles will just hang about in the ponds until the following spring, and they metamorphose then, and, and uh, uh, there'll be a much larger metamorph compared to some of the conspecifics that may have done that, or you know, or early batches that would have uh, you know, gone straight through to development. So would you say that in a way their kind of patience actually conveys a, an advantage when they come into being proper toads? It does, yes. And our populations do this. So if you've ever had 
tadpoles in the garden, you'll know that they're all different sizes. The thing is, is that they're probably all about the same age. And the reason is, is that some of them hedge their bets and just hang around in the pond, which can be risky because they can obviously dry out. And some of them want to jump ship as fast as possible and develop really quickly, but become a tiny froglet in the process and get out the pond as soon as possible. So we do see this disparity in nature in perfect systems anyway, uh, but it's just because of the late breeding that the toads are doing. So the last survey that I completed this year was in the end of August, and one of the males that we, we swabbed uh, had a fresh batch of eggs. So he had, he had just fertilized those within the past week. They take three to six weeks to develop, depending on the weather conditions. Uh, he would go high somewhere that's damp and wet, uh, and cool, uh, and uh, wait for them to, to to develop, and then just before they hatch, he'll he'll move towards the breeding pond, deposit the eggs, they'll hatch in the tadpoles, and he'll never see them again. And do the tadpoles look noticeably different from a common frog tadpole or a toad tadpole? They, they look quite quite similar. Uh, so, common toad tadpoles are jet black. Common frog tadpoles. Are black, they have a lot of brown and gold speckles on their underbelly. Yeah. If you look up closer, they're common frog tadpoles, they're actually beautiful. They, 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 they are, they are marvels in evolution. But with uh, middle toad tadpoles, they are they're grey in colour and they're, they're speckled. Uh, and it's more pronounced when they're bigger, uh, but at the smaller stages of, uh, of, of the tadpoles, that they can obviously all look the same like everything does. So, uh, yeah. The only thing is, is that our native species don't grow to the sizes that their tadpoles do. So their tadpoles, as I said, as long as my index finger, yeah, which, is, which is you know a good seven or eight centimeters. Yeah, just for the listeners, Steve's got normal size fingers. <laughs> <laughs> the fingers you'd expect. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, uh, they, they are quite quite large, and they can easily sit on the breadth of my hand. Uh, 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 we found tadpoles of two or more different age classes in the same pond. So this spring, when we found these large tadpoles, that clearly been deposited there this time last year. We also found some fresh ones that just just hatched. So they were pretty tiny, and they're rummaging around with these big boys. Uh, the big ones don't predate the little ones. Sorry. That's the thing that they do predate the little ones. Oh really? So we've also when we did the DNA analysis, we took buckle swabs from ten adults. And we also collected some dead tadpoles from some of the ponds. The reason we know they were dead is because the, the, the other tadpoles were munching on them. Uh, and then they, they, they were then preserved enough and no one sent to a lab. Oh, cool. Nature and all its merciless glory. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, man, fascinating. Really cool to hear about the midwife toads. So, what? You've now started your master's. I'm now doing my master's, yeah. Um, it's a master's by research. It is, yes. And so. What is the kind of theme of your research now? Okay, so uh, as part of my master's, I'm doing two five-month projects. The first one, unsurprisingly, is on kidred fungus. Do you like frogs then? I, I, I love frogs, of course, <laughs> as you had not noticed. Uh, it's on kidred fungus in Madagascar and amphibians. Unfortunately, due to outbreaks of the plague, I won't be completing my field work. But uh, some, some teams we've got on the ground there as part of this ongoing monitoring project I've shoehorned my way into. Uh, they're going to collect us the samples, send them to me, and then I'll do the analysis in London. Cool. Uh, is that the bubonic plague? It, it's, it's the pneumonic plague, yes. So, oh, right. the, so they, they, they've got a, an outbreak of, of the plague, and uh, the World Health Organization have uh, recommended 
no one travels there unless you need to. But uh, so yeah, the uh, the outlook isn't looking great until about April time. Unfortunately, that's when my project will come to an end. Uh, obviously, five months from now is April, uh, and my second project I'm not sure about. But uh, uh, just to put things in the context, in case I'm talking about this fungal disease that no one knows anything about. Well, if they're listeners of the show, they should know something about it because episode twelve or thirteen—I can't remember which one we're on now. Was all about Kytrid. Oh, okay. So, yeah, okay. they should have some idea, but no, go on. How, how many people know? So, so Kytrid was... Kytrid, yeah, not Kytrid. I made yes. that mistake before. <laughs> different people pronounce it differently. Both are correct. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that means... Yeah, okay, so the correction in our last episode needn't have been a correction, then. Because <laughs> we were talking... So, it, like, um, more uh, uh, American academics tend to call it Kytrid, whereas British and European people tend to call it Kytrid. Right. It's just because of, of how we... Uh, how we pronounce wires and stuff, so... Yeah. I'm really relieved to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's good. So, so don't worry, guys. <laughs> you can pronounce it all the way you want. But, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, so Kitchen was first noticed uh, in 1989 at the, uh, the First World Congress of Herpetology held, held here in the UK, in Canterbury and Kent. And scientists were meeting, and everyone had the same story, that they'd be monitoring this population of frogs, and over the course of three or four years, this all disappeared. And uh, it wasn't until 1999, uh, there, thereabouts, it was, it was, it was in 1999, since the end of the last millennium, uh, was was uh, isolated for the first time from a dead dark frog. Um, yeah, I read the paper. Yeah, so, so uh, which is why it gets its name, uh, Dendrobatidis, because yeah, it was the, Dendrobate, yeah, yeah. Exactly, so. Uh, that, that paper's quite. Spooky to read because it's like they don't really, they, don't, they haven't really fully sort of realized the monster they've. Oh, no, exactly. This is the thing. Uh, and I, I think that it's been 20 years ish that we've known about Kitchard and we still know very little about it in the grand scheme of things. If Kitchard was a disease that infected humans like HIV or you know, tuberculosis or malaria, you know, the funding would be, you know, left, right, and center. It still is in terms of, of biodiversity. Uh, but there are so many unknowns about it that uh, it's still quite scary. Although most of us in the industry uh, are quite optimistic and you know happy people, you know we're not depressed and hanging ourselves at, you know on a daily basis, yeah. despite the looming uh, biodiversity crisis. Uh, but obviously, recently, Kitrid's evil twin brother uh, was discovered. Uh, yeah, B cell. B cell that has the. Uh, the, the potential to wipe out uh, Europe and America's salamander diversity. Uh, so yeah, that was first seen. Uh, in, it was first noticed in 2010 in the Netherlands when their fire salamanders crashed by 96 percent over three years, and then that was first isolated in 2013 because of the, of what's been uh, caused by Kitrid BD. Uh, everybody is moving forward and acting fast on B-cell to try to stop these, these processes from happening. So, for example, the US has banned the importation of 201 species of salamanders in case they're trying to uh, And, you know, th- th- there are lots of projects going, uh, taking place in continental Europe trying to monitor where Kitrid is. So it started in the Netherlands, but it's now spread to Germany and Belgium. There's a chance that maybe in France, it's only 15 kilometers away from the border, it's just the dials haven't been observed to say yes, this this fungus is here. Uh, the other thing, 
is in terms of the diseases is that bee cell is treatable so you probably send them out and stick it in a bath of water chuck in some, yeah, some fungicide so work it up to 25 degrees celsius leave it for 10 days and the infection will be clear the same is true of cutin though no there's no known cure for bd so you can mitigate against it slightly but there's no known cure the, the, the issue with, with with B cell is that trying to catch a whole population of salamanders and mitigate this in, in real life is impossible. The spores can remain dormant for up to three years in the soil, just waiting for a salamander or frog to come along and then they'll infect that individual to be passed on to, to another. So we know that B cell can infect frogs, but it doesn't cause them any harm, they just act as vectors. And recently, a team of scientists found that B cell was being uh, transmitted through the pet trade uh, from uh, fibrillated toads exported from Vietnam into Europe. And we know that in attractive collections, that B cell is in the UK, it's in Spain, it's everywhere in Europe. It's just a matter of when it escapes due to poor biosecurity or uh, someone being irresponsible releasing a, a sick pet into the wild, that it could, it could explode, you know, obviously cause huge. There is hope, just like every situation, but how dark it looks, there's always light. So, hopefully, in a couple of years' time, uh, we would have prevented B cell from breaking into the wild and would have found a way to mitigate it real time uh, in the wild. But until then, hold on to your head speed because who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, uh, yeah, I reckon that's a good point to call it quits. We've got a conference to get back to. We do, and beers to drink. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you very, very much for joining me. On You're very Alex. welcome. Yeah, it's really, really good. And um, how can people get hold of you if they want to follow you on, for example, Twitter? Okay, so so <laughs> you, you can find me on uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. My uh, handle is at Steve Aralane. So my surname is spelled A-L-L-A-I-M. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook at my own page uh, and yeah uh, if you want to read any of my blogs then just google search bioweb.ie or wildlife articles and type my name into the search bar and uh, you're ready to find me excellent there'll be lots of folk related content <laughs> good stuff yeah well thank you very much Steve yeah it's been really fun you're welcome thank you very much <laughs> cheers <laughs>